Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's featured preacher is Billy Graham. Dr. Graham abandons his prepared notes and he speaks from his heart. Today's message is about the threat of communism and the need for urgent evangelism in the Christian church. I'm praying the Holy Spirit will prepare our hearts during these days. for the world that lies ahead. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou would speak to us today. Thou hast already spoken to us through these messages that we have heard, and our hearts have been stirred and moved and challenged. Now we pray that we shall determine that we are going to do something about it that we are not going to be hearers only, but we are going to be doers of the word. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Anoint this convention and give us the courage to take a new step of commitment in a new dimension than we've ever known before. And may we hold a light to the world at this tragic hour. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to thank Dr. Vaught and the members of his committee for the privilege that I have this afternoon of speaking to you for these few moments. I have at least one record that I don't think can be broken. I have the privilege of closing more conferences and more conventions and pronouncing more benedictions than almost any other preacher. I'm closing the pastor's conference today. I have the privilege of closing the convention Friday night. I have the privilege of closing the Baptist World Alliance in Rio. I closed the school year at Southern Seminary last Monday night, and uh, I guess the epitaph at the end of my life will be the closer's gone. <laughs> and brethren, I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart, I would like to open something for a change. And if you've got an association or if you've got a church anywhere that's going to open, I'd like to be invited to open it because it would be a new experience. But I have sat here these nights, these hours, and my heart has been stirred and challenged, and I believe God has done something in my own soul, and I needed it. Because I came to this conference empty, very empty. I'd preached all over Africa, and since I've come back, I've preached in various parts of the country. I haven't had an opportunity to fill up, to study, to meditate, to pray, and I came empty. 
And last night I was convicted of my sins and my barrenness. And if this conference were held only for me, it's been more than worthwhile. I identified myself with the young man in the drama last evening. I went back to my room in the hotel and got on my knees and I cried out, Oh God, forgive me! And it's so easy to fall into the trap that Howard Butt reminded us of, of conformity, until we become the organizational man and we become involved in an octopus of machinery and organization until we have lost the blessing and power of God in our ministry. And then to be reminded by Chester, Dr. Chester Swar of these things this afternoon should humble every one of us. Because 96% of the American people Adults claim to be identified with some church. And the people that are doing the drinking and the people that are involved in sexual immorality, the majority of them are church members. And we need evangelism within the church. I thought when the convention was going to be in Miami that it probably would not be very well attended because there are so many other attractions. We can come here now by jet in a few hours or hour or half an hour. I heard about one woman that took her husband to the airport in New York and put him on the jet. And by the time he had driven back from the airport, a telegram was waiting him at home saying, Arrive safely in Miami. Love. But you have been faithful in your attendance. And I believe this could be a historic and meaningful convention. Now, I am not going to bring the message altogether that I had planned to bring this afternoon. I had my notes carefully prepared. I tried to prepare it in such a way that the homiletics professors at our seminaries would approve. But I cannot help but just talk to you out of my heart about the world and what is happening at this moment. It's been my privilege in the last five years to talk to the heads of state of 47 countries. I've had the privilege of talking to Mr. Nehru in India, to the Prime Minister of Japan, to the Premier, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, to the President of Israel, many times to the President of the United States, to the Queen and her husband in England, And I know something of the heavy burden that some of these people carry. And among those 47, I have found only a handful that were optimistic. 
I have found only a handful that believe that war can be averted, ultimately. Mr. Khrushchev came to the Paris conference, the summit conference, and all the political leaders of all parties seemingly in the Western world agree that he came to torpedo that summit conference. Why? Mr. McMillan said when he got off the plane in Paris that if this summit conference fails, we may be on the verge of the extinction of civilization itself. The conference has already failed. Why? Is it because of tremendous pressure at home? Is it because of Chinese pressure in which the Chinese have openly declared that they believe we ought to have a hot war in order to destroy much of civilization because in the end there would be enough Chinese and Russians to make it a communist world and that's all that counts? Or is it because Mr. Khrushchev thought that there would be no compromise from the West on Berlin and he saw no success from his point of view? Or is it because that he wanted to interject himself into the American political campaign this year? One party was going to use as its platform peace and prosperity. And one of the political candidates has already been referred to by Mr. Khrushchev as a goat. Or was it because that uh, Mr. Khrushchev was afraid that Mr. Eisenhower coming to Russia might receive such an overwhelming reception that it would make it difficult for the communist leaders to get the population united again? Because remember, only 3% of the people of the Soviet Union are communist. 97% of the people of the Soviet Union are not communist. And in the Soviet Union at this hour, let us not forget, there are tens of thousands of devout Christians who believe in God, who love Christ, who are dedicated to Christ, and who are not communist, but they are caught on the horns of a dilemma that none of us knows anything about. Or could it be that we are seeing unfolded in our, before our eyes a far-reaching strategy of Satan himself? He is called in the Scriptures the Prince of this world. He is called the God of this age. He is called an angel of light. And the scripture says the whole earth lieth in the arms of the wicked one. And ladies and gentlemen, let's never forget that the scriptures teach, and maybe all of you will not agree, that this is primarily and basically the devil's work. And he offered this world to Christ on the Mount of Temptation. And Christ did not dispute the devil's right to offer it to him.
He is called the God of this age. And the scripture says, In whom the God of this age hath blinded the eyes of them lest they believe. One day, Mr. Khrushchev is an angel of light. All smiles and the world relaxes. The next day, he is a roaring lion and the world trembles. Could it be that some of those people who have said that communism is the great counterfeit of Christianity, could it be that this satanic-inspired religion is demonstrating before our eyes what the scriptures have long told us about the spirit of Antichrist. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. I listened to the news all the early afternoon. Mr. Khrushchev turned down the invitation by Mr. McMillan to meet today. He demands that the United States grovel. He demands that the President of the United States apologize. And Walter Cronkite of CBS said at 1.15 this afternoon, the world is plunged into the darkest gloom in the history of civilization because he said for the first time man could destroy himself. And Mr. Khrushchev this afternoon has announced that tomorrow he may fly to Berlin to sign a separate peace treaty with East Germany tomorrow, and if he does, we will either have to back all the way and surrender, or I tell you, my beloved brethren, this is a serious hour. And on CBS this afternoon, they printed the headlines of the world's great papers in London and Paris and Stockholm and Tokyo. And those headlines read like something out of the book of Revelation. One of them read, Is Armageddon at hand? Nobody knows. I personally don't think we're going to have war now. I pray to God we will find some way to peace. We are told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and blessed is the peacemaker. And every one of us should be praying for the president. But I tell you one false move at this tense and explosive moment when the American armed forces have been alerted when troop movements and all the other things are gathering over the world, one false move, and this city of Miami could be wiped out. 
because those Soviet submarines are sitting off our coast, as our intelligence has informed us many times, with their rockets able to penetrate 1,500 miles from either coast. And almost every major city in America is under their fire. Can we go into a Southern Baptist convention in 1960 and have business as usual? Can we come to Miami in this beautiful environment and forget what is happening in the world? Can we laugh and joke and talk while the world is burning up? Or would we be guilty as Nero, who is supposed to have played his fiddle while Rome burned? There are three things I want to say this afternoon. I want, first of all, to say something about the preacher's world, which I have just talked about. The second thing I want to say is the preacher's message in the midst of this world. And the third thing is the preacher's life in the midst of the world in which we live. Neville Shute, in his book on the beach, said, maybe we've been too silly to deserve a world like this. What kind of a world? A world that is in revolt. A world of fear. Here is what Dmitry E. Malinsky said in 1931. He was the man that headed the Russian delegation to the United Nations in San Francisco in 1945, and here's what he said 29 years ago. Listen. War to the hilt between communism and capitalism is inevitable. Today, of course, we're not strong enough to attack. Our time will come in 30 years. To win, we shall need the element of surprise. The bourgeois will have to be put to sleep. So we shall begin by launching the most spectacular peace movement on record. There will be electrifying overtures and unheard of concessions. The capitalist countries, stupid and decadent, will rejoice to cooperate in their own destruction. They will leap at another chance to be friends. And as soon as their guard is down, we shall smash them with our clenched fists. He said that would happen in 30 years, and it's been 29 years of those 30 years. Yes, an age of fear, an age of secularism, an age of intellectual uncertainty. Dr. Alan Walker of Australia says, secular education retains its grip upon many minds, but doubt is spreading about the ability of education to come to grips with the problems of evil. It is thus into an enlarging intellectual vacuum that the Christian faith is being proclaimed. Intellectually, we stand at the end of an era. It is an age of competition. While in Africa, I saw the competition. I saw an aggressive evangelistic Islam that is winning seven converts for every three that we are winning to Christianity. The Southern Baptists have one of the greatest 
investments in missions today in Nigeria. This year, Nigeria gets her independence. One out of every six people in Africa live in Nigeria. We have 700 schools in Nigeria. Did you know that? I'm on the foreign mission board, and I didn't know that until I got to traveling around among them, and I said, how many do we have? They said, 700. We have hundreds and hundreds of self-supporting churches in Nigeria. Blessed be to God, and let's sing the doxology, but wait till you hear this. In Nigeria, Islam is gaining 10 converts for every one we get to Christianity. Now that includes the Roman Catholics who have in eastern Nigeria alone more missionaries than the whole Southern Baptist Convention in the whole world. And we're going to hear a lot of statistics this week. And on Friday night, I'm going to give some. But I want to tell you this. We are not winning the world, brethren. We are losing the world. China alone is increasing at the rate of population of 25 million a year. The population of Asia. By 1975, 15 years from now, the population of Asia alone will equal that of the whole world today. We're losing the world, and we're losing it rapidly. It's an age of competition, communism, Islam, materialism, reaching for the minds of men. It's also an age of immorality, and I thank God for what Dr. Swar has had the courage to say this afternoon. Do you know what a manager of a drive-in theater told me some time ago in North Carolina? He said, in the summertime on Saturday night, I estimate that in 75% of the automobile sexual intercourse takes place. And this was in a town where almost everybody goes to church. Look magazine shocked the whole nation when they came out a few months ago with their survey entitled The Mood of America, in which they said less than 10% of the people interviewed felt that honesty was a prime requisite for successful living. In other words, you don't have to be honest anymore. Cheating and chiseling are accepted practice in our society. Moral shortcuts are permissible. Success at any price is our maxim, and we excuse it by saying everybody's doing it. Dr. Robert Fitch in Christianity and Crisis said, the usual moral distinctions are being drowned in emotion in which we have more feeling for the murderer than for the murdered, for the adulterer than for the betrayed, and in which we gradually begin to believe that the really guilty party, the one who somehow caused it all, is the victim, not the perpetrator of the crime. 
Nobody demonstrated a few weeks ago for the poor girl who is in an insane asylum in California. Nobody had any emotion about that. What has happened to our moral sensitivity? What is happening to our conscience? And even we preachers are being put to sleep by the sedative of television and many other secularistic and worldly influences until we no longer stand up in the pulpit as a prophet of God. However, in the midst of all this, it is also a world of unprecedented religious inquiry. Never in the history of the world, perhaps, have people been so interested in religion as they are today. The scripture says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son born made of a woman. God had his fullness of time, philosophically, militarily, politically, when Christ came. I wonder if we have reached another fullness of time, a fullness of time in history in which God may give us a few more months, a few more years, in which we will have an unprecedented opportunity to declare the message of Christ around the world. Dr. John Mackay said recently of Princeton, this is one of God's springtimes, one of his terrible springtimes. Rays of a spring dawn are showing through the night sky. I do not believe this is late autumn or early winter in human affairs. Springtime can be a time of devastating floods as well as the fragrance of flowers. Dr. James Stewart of Edinburgh said, Thus the very disillusionment of today is the raw material of the Christian hope. Never has the political world, the philosophical world, the intellectual world, the economic world, never has the world looked to the church as it's looking today. And are we giving them bread or stones? in the midst of this world in which we live. What is the message of the preacher? Two Sunday nights ago, Dr. E. Stanley Jones, the great Methodist evangelist, was interviewed on CBS for only one minute. They said, Dr. Jones, what is your message for the world? He said, five years ago, I would have answered more vaguely. But my message for the world today is in one simple phrase. Christ and him crucified. 
Alexander White, in describing his Sunday morning walks with Marcus Dodds, declared, Whatever we started off with in our conversation, we soon made a cross-country somehow to Jesus of Nazareth, to his death and his resurrection and his indwelling. Now, I do not have the ability to preach to preachers. I need to be preached to. And I stand here today as no example of what a preacher ought to be. My sins, my failures are ever before me until I must fall as Isaiah did and say, Woe is me! But brethren, I have come to one conclusion. I found myself in the last two years drifting in my preaching. I found myself drifting into clever preaching. clever phraseology. I began writing out my manuscripts and studying them to make them clever. Until one day, a few weeks ago, in Africa, God spoke to me and moved me. And he showed me Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 1 again when the Apostle Paul said, And I have not done this by the persuasiveness of clever words, for I have no desire to rob the cross of its power. Paul said, I could use clever words. Paul said, I could bring all these gifts of eloquence but I deliberately refuse because if I used them, I would rob the cross of its power. Amen. Brethren, we need plain preaching today. And I want to tell you this, Dr. Swall. If we preachers had been preaching the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, which is also law, and preaching it plainly so that the people understood what we were talking about. And if we'd been preaching on lying and cheating and adultery and fornication and all of these things, and if we had been preaching on judgment and preaching on hell, which we no longer preach much, our young people have lost the fear of God. To them, God is a kindly old man with a long beard sitting on a cloud with a harp in his hand. And the only thing we can tell them about Jesus was his compassion. And we forget that almost every parable he spoke was one of judgment. People are no longer afraid of judgment. That drama last night, Why, if some of us got up and screamed like those southern seminary fellows did about death and hell, they'd say we were reactionary. Thank God.
for that drama. You know what James Denny, the great Scottish theologian, said? He said this, No man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. Let them see Jesus in our preaching. And brethren, we are to be preachers. There is no power on earth and there is no throne on earth comparable to that of a preacher in his pulpit. I have stood in that pulpit in Scotland where John Knox has preached from and I thought of John Knox time after time when his head was at stake standing there. And Mary the Queen was afraid and the soldiers were afraid. She said, I fear John Knox more than I do all the armies of England. Dr. Hugh Thompson Kerr, the editor of Theology Today, published by Princeton Seminary, says this, We are sent not to preach sociology, but salvation. Not economics, but evangelism. Not reform, but redemption. Not culture, but conversion. Not progress, but pardon. Not the social order, but the new birth. Not a new organization, but a new creation. Not democracy, but the gospel. Not civilization, but Christ. We're ambassadors, not diplomats. And Dr. John Mott said in Madras in 1938, any gospel that leaves out sin, repentance, the cross, and the resurrection is no gospel. Dr. James Stewart of Edinburgh says, what was the message of the first generation? It was not a theory or an idea. It was neither an argument with paganism. It was not a message on brotherhood, ethical exhortation, or religious edification. It was the announcement of certain concrete facts of history, the heralding of real objective events. It was declaration, not debate. The driving force of the early Christian mission was not propaganda of beautiful ideals of the brotherhood of man. It was the proclamation of the mighty acts of God. There were two events, which in reality were not two but one. First, Christ died for our sins, and secondly, God has raised him from the dead. Our message is to be the same as that of the early church, that Christ died for our sins, as the scripture has said, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. And we are to preach it against a backdrop of judgment. Wesley once said, before I can preach grace, I must preach judgment. Dr. Sangster of London says, all great preaching in the past has been delivered against a background of sin and impending judgment, and all true preaching still must be. And when you preach this gospel, that can transform a man, can reunite a home, can make an alcoholic leave his alcohol, can bind up a wounded heart, can give a man supernatural power to overcome the temptations of life. When you preach it, preach it with authority. Brethren, we need authoritative preaching today. Thus saith the Lord kind of preaching. And 
then secondly, preach it with simplicity. James Denny said once, if you shoot over the heads of your hearers, you prove nothing except you don't know how to shoot. I have talked to scores of people lately, and I ask laymen this question almost every time I talk to a layman. Do you understand what the preacher is talking about? Invariably, they say no. One of the most educated women in England told me five years ago, she said, I have had to go to church every Sunday since I was a little girl, and I'm supposed to have the best education in England. But she said, I can only remember two sermons I ever understood. Do like D.L. Moody said, put the cookies on the lower shelf and everybody can get them. And that's hard. Boy, we've got that seminary diploma up in our study. It's hard. And even I, with very poor education, and very little intellectual ability, I have the most difficult time staying simple. I have to fight it almost as much as I do with any other thing because I have the opportunity to read more than the average person. But if I ever lose simplicity in preaching, that's the day the crowds will disappear. Be simple. You can be profound, but you can be simple. And then, thirdly, preach it with urgency. Abraham Lincoln said, when I hear a preacher preach, I want him to preach like he's fighting a swarm of bees. <laughs> we preach this gospel as though we don't mean it. We don't give over sincerity. We talk about these great issues in a tone of voice. and with a relaxation. Do we really believe the world is on fire? Do we really believe the gospel is the only answer? Do we really believe that men are going to be judged? Do we believe that men are lost? Then let's preach like it. Like the actor and the preacher who were friends in London. And the preacher said to the actor, Why is your theater always filled and my church is always empty? And the actor said, well, I act. It may be because I act as though I believed it. And you preach as though you don't believe it. The people can sense it. And what a thrill it is to go into a church where there's a sense of urgency about the church. Where the church has the spirit and the fire of the early church. In Moscow, two summers ago, 50,000 communist young people stood in Red Square. And they were chanting. And they were stamping their feet. 50,000 in unison. And they were shouting with raised fists, we are going to change the world. 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 They have taken the dedication, the surrender, the fire, the enthusiasm of Christianity. 
and put it in communism and we've lost it. We need to recapture it. And I agree with Dr. John Mackay when he spoke to his Princeton students two years ago before he retired and said, Nazism had fire. Fascism had fire. Communism has fire. The church must catch fire. We've allowed the devil to make us bend over backwards against having any emotion. And I'm the first one to decry emotion in evangelism. So help me, I do not believe in the last ten years I've ever told a story, a deathbed story, or a story to move a person's emotions. I found early in my ministry that you can tell stories to move the emotions of people and they would come forward in our meetings, but they were not moved toward repentance of sin. They were moved about the story they'd heard and it was a spurious emotional experience. But I tell you this, anybody that screams emotion in religion and allows our young people to go to ball games and scream to kill the umpire and sits in front of a television set and bites their fingernails off, as my children do, and weep over some drama and scream with delight with, I love Lucy. And then if somebody sheds a tear or has a smile about Christ, they yell over emotion. We need some emotion today. We need to get stirred up. We need fire. And one of the emblems of the Holy Spirit in Scripture, one of the symbols is fire. Wind and fire, and you put wind and fire together and you have a blaze. And then lastly, the preacher's life. Oh, there's so much I could say here. We're living in a day when the Protestant clergy are being discredited by the devil in plays, television, and films. Have you noticed that? Almost every television program that has a Protestant clergyman in it, he's a psychopath. Or he's a, a hypocrite, or he's immoral. This is Satan's grand strategy to destroy the place of the preacher to destroy his testimony, and every time a Protestant clergyman falls, the press grab it and make headlines out of it. And the devil is tempting the clergy today as never before. I had one of the greatest Bible teachers in America call me some time ago, and he said, Billy, I have made a study of demonology. And he said, I'm convinced that there is a great concentration of demon power in America. And he said, the greatest concentration of demon power today is on the clergy. In the matter of pride, and I want to tell you something. This business of pride is a tricky and subtle thing. And I know. 
And the line of distinction between pride and humility is very narrow. And I search my own motives time after time, and sometimes I wonder if I'm proud or humble. Sometimes I don't know. But we're used to being treated a little differently than anybody else in the community. Pastor or rabbi in the streets, we like to wear our phylacteries. We like to be honored and respected and called to the head table, sit on the places where the people can see us. We like to be remembered at Christmas, and if we don't, we're offended. We like to be told that our sermons are good, and if we don't get that attention afterward, we feel it. Pride! And God cannot use a proud person, because that was the sin of Lucifer. And then Satan tries to get us in the matter of morals. What Dr. Swar said about immorality, Dr. Sorokin of Harvard University has written a book that every American ought to read. He is the head of the Department of Sociology at Harvard, and he wrote a book last year entitled The American Sex Revolution, and you ought to read the chapter in there on the church. The church and sex, the preachers and sex. How many ministers this past year, Baptist ministers, have the newspapers carried stories of fallen preachers? And don't point a finger at them and say, isn't it too bad? Take heed, brethren, lest we fall also. I want to tell you something. I'm preparing a sermon right now. Maybe you've preached on it. I haven't. But I'm preparing it now on the men in the Old and New Testament that fell. Did you know that almost every one of God's men that fell, fell at their strongest point? You say, this thing will never get me. I am immune. I am clean. We're living in a day when the powers of hell have made sex the most penetrating device that they have ever found in this country. In the matter of money, I received a letter from a minister, from a professor at one of our seminaries a few weeks ago because I had written him about the possibility of coming with us. Did you know that I was shocked? Not once in the letter did he mention the will of God. I thank God he didn't come. I'd made a mistake. But, brother, he had everything in there about tenure, retirement benefits, all of these things that he had to have as guarantees.
Is that what the Apostle Paul used to do? Brethren, I'll come over to you, but I've got to have a guarantee of so much. The will of God must be first, and if God calls us, we go. Even if the security from the human point of view is not there because we must rest on the everlasting arms of the Savior. Don't let Satan trip you up in the matter of money. And in personal ethics, I was as a pastor some time ago in this city, not a Baptist pastor. Right here on Miami Beach, we parked. We overparked. We came back and there was a ticket on the windshield. I was with him in his car. He laughed, took it in his hand, tore it up. He said, they'll never get me. A little thing, you say? Or what about speeding on the highway? Boy, this was one of the sermons I preached to the missionaries in Africa. The most dangerous thing in Africa is not the water, it's not the food, it's not the diseases, it's not the animals, it's not the Africans themselves, it's the driving of the missionaries. But the other day, I was driving down the highway, and I preached sermons on this business of highway safety. I believe it's a moral problem and a spiritual problem. I don't need to preach that now. But I was driving down the highway, and the speed law was 55 miles an hour, and I was going 65. And my daughter said to me, she said, Dad, do you think a Christian ought to exceed the speed limit? Now, that's a little thing. But if I can cheat the law in speeding down a highway, my little children will say, well, Daddy doesn't mind breaking the law. And how many policemen I have ridden with that said the worst offenders in their town were preachers? Of course, I know sinners are running fast, and you've got to go fast to get them. Somebody asked me why I come to Florida a week every winter. I tell them that's where the sinners are, and I've got to go get them. But in your ministry, I want to ask you this. You remember the story of Elisha's school of prophets? And there was a fellow with an axe, and he was chopping down a tree, and the axe head fell into the water. You know what he did? He went straight to Elisha and told him about it. And Elisha came and made the axe head swim and put it back on the axe, and he continued chopping. But do you know what a lot of us have done? We have been chopping down trees in the early part of our ministry, and long ago the axe head fell. But instead of asking God for a new touch of the Holy Spirit, We've kept on chopping with the old handle. And a lot of you fellows are flailing around with a handle. The Spirit of God left your ministry long ago. 
you can continue to preach sermons and the organization is running smooth. But in the midst of apparent success, you know the barrenness of your own heart and you know your own spiritual failure. Samson, the Spirit of God was upon him and he got up to fight the Philistines and he wished not that the Spirit of God had departed. Some of you, the Spirit of God has departed and you don't even know it. You're not even conscious of it because your conscience has become hardened and dulled and the spiritual sensitivity is gone. The old fire and the old compassion is gone and you have an empty, barren life. I want all of us to stand with bowed heads. I'm going to ask the lights are out. I want us to bow our heads. And I want us as a conference and as individuals at this dark hour of history, I want us to bow our heads and rededicate our lives to Christ and ask him to put his hand upon us again. And I want to stand here this afternoon telling you that I need in my life and in my ministry a touch of God. I need it. I'm the most needy man here. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.